All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 345. Jason Lingren is with me. Um, we're going to cover eugenics, which is pretty topical right about now for people who have half a clue. Um, it could be that we'll do a trilogy here. We've got a lot of material. It could be that Wayne may jump in for part of this, but um, it's a heck of a topic. And in the opening here, I'm going to draw a couple lines. And of course, we'll do the words have meaning things. Um, anyhow, welcome, Jason. Yes, this indeed will probably be at least two episodes, if not three. So we'll see how far we get here. There's a ton of material. And, and as always, I left some out. Yeah. So let's just start with the words have meaning game. Uh, the name Eugene is pretty clearly related to the word eugenics. Just do a lookup on that and do an etymology on that. And you will see all kinds of versions of the idea of being nobly born. Um, there's quite a bit there, actually more than I'm going to cover right here. but. I guess we'll just jump in here, Jason, and I'll draw a line to Dune right out of the gate. So we'll start with what does eugenics mean? Eugenics is the study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characteristics regarded as desirable. Developed largely by Sir Francis Galton as a method of improving the human race, eugenics was increasingly discredited as unscientific and racially biased during the 20th century, especially after the adoption of its doctrines by the Nazis in order to justify their treatment of Jews, disabled people, and other minority groups. All right, two things right out of the gate here. First of all, there are a lot of serious researchers that would take umbrage with what was just said about the Nazis, which is why I never cover it. It's, an, it's a no-win scenario. Just put it on the record that there are other points of view that are probably valid. Um, to go on with this, the, the, the basic foundational idea set down here flies in the face of the sky clock. If you accept that we're all dancing to the music, the sky clock is playing, then by definition, there are going to be broadly classed groups of living men and women that are very different from each other. And even within those groups, there are going to be vast differences. In other words, the system itself that creates life by intent, by design, if you want to go that far, is designed to create differences that are polar and beyond polar. But let's get into the book Dune for a second here, because this long game has been going, and the further we get into what's going on in the world now, I have little doubt that the people that we used to say are in and around the circles of lords and ladies and royalty, I, I have like next to no doubt that there was a script being played from, and I think the book Dune is good. I used to always ask, how the hell could he have known this? And I'm coming around to, it was part of a plan, and think of the incident in the book, in the opening, probably two or three chapters, probably maybe chapter two, I don't know, I'm guessing, but very early on in the book Dune by Frank Herbert, the father, not the son, the real Dune. Um, and in my view, the real Dune was written by the father. The other ones are all right, but they're, they don't rise to the same level. There's this thing called the gum jabbar, which is basically a needle that's put on the finger of a Benny Gesserit witch mother or you know master, whatever you want to call her, head of the order. And what she does is she takes this young supposed prince and she puts an illusion on him to make him think his hand is burning to a nub. It's not happening. It is completely made up, non-existent illusion, but it seems real to the prince. Now, she holds this needle on her finger next to his neck called the gum jabbar. And if he cries out, 
pulls his hand out of this box that's creating the illusion, he'll be instantly put down because he will have classified himself as non-human, as an animal, because a human being, according to the logic being employed here, has the ability to take complete control over illusions. So how is it that even the name of that thing, the gum jabbar, you got to see where I'm going here. Um, And I think these are critically important things to think about. That allegory alone should tell you probably which side of this argument you want to come out on. I mean, what would you add, Jason? Well, Frank Herbert tied a lot of interesting concepts in there, and it seems like he was pulling from reality, of course, for things like the Bene Gesserit, kind of reminds me of the Jesuits, that kind of thing. Yeah, the guy seemed to be dialed in quite well. Yeah, I don't know of another... I mean, I guess people will make the distinction between sci-fi and fantasy, whatever the heck you want to call the genre, prize sci-fi, I would guess. The allegories are fast and furious throughout the totality of the books written by Frank Herbert Sr. And it shows, it basically gives you a backstage pass to how power works and the almost magical nature, well, flat out magical nature of how some of it goes. But as we get in here, I'll use the same measuring stick I always do. What's a tree tell me? What are the natural world tell me? What does the animal kingdom tell me? What does the mineral kingdom tell me to try to balance this idea called eugenics, which, by the way, can't be balanced? The stated purpose of eugenics by many of its proponents is to improve the quality of the human race by encouraging the reproduction of humans with desirable traits and discouraging those with weaker traits. Genetics reinforced the prejudices of the 19th and 20th centuries by deeming those with desirable genetic traits as white, of higher economic status, and healthy. On the other hand, those with undesirable traits were identified as non-white, of lower economic status, or were physically or mentally disabled. In addition, criminals and those that were deemed sexually deviant were considered undesirable. However, there was a difference in white people. Those with a northern and western European heritage were deemed desirable, while those that were from southern and eastern Europe were deemed undesirable. All right, well, I hate to beat the same drum, but we're going to have to here. So consider the sky clock again. And I think I can demonstrate all day long that there is really no argument that that is the music that we all dance to if you're alive in this world, even down to the mineral and plant kingdoms. If you take the astrology, so-called, well, it was astronomy back in those days. It was the science of the sky, just not what we call science today. They would tell you, well, look at it this way. When you do like a birth chart, if you just did a birth chart, where are the planets and all these things on this day, and you applied it to everyone born on that day, you'd see this is poppycock. These people are different. Everything about them is different. And so what they do is they narrow it down to a particular point of time and a geography Now, I'm harping on the geography for a reason. It is supposed um, by these old systems that every geography in the world is associatable with some portion of the zodiac, as are races. So think about what we're saying here. If you look at the idea that, as an example, opposites would be like Gemini and Sagittarius as an example, if you got a Gemini (laughs) to judge a Sagittarius, would it be a proper judgment? You can see where this goes. It's just all outside of what nature shows us to be the design and reality of this place. So my big problem with eugenics, not that there aren't many, right off the bat, is that it seems to take away the spiritual component. Like, 
the spirit of the individual choosing a body would only choose what they are deeming a person of good stock and anyone else, they're just worthless. That's kind of not how things work. You know, I'm limited in the things I'd like to know and I'll work my whole life to try to know more. But this flies in the face of what I currently accept is true about a thing called universal law. Even to the point, if you go back to the supposed masters of any given age, they'll tell you so many root races, usually the number is seven, and then there will be sub races, and each age has the association with what I'm telling you. So what eugenics is on the face of it is a one-sided narrative that basically is saying whatever we want is correct and everyone else needs to go. In America, the eugenics movement began in the 1900s with the work of Charles Davenport, who was a well-known leader of the American eugenics effort. Also known as the father of the American eugenics movement, Davenport was a biologist who conducted early studies on heredity in animals and shifted his focus to humans. Davenport was also inspired by Galton's work with eugenics and how to reduce undesirable traits in the human race. As a result of the widespread belief in the eugenics movement, numerous states would enact sterilization laws in the early 20th century, many of which lasted for decades. We will now back up and show the background and build up to how such a disgusting thing as the eugenics movement came to be. And it did, in fact, go on for some time, but it was hidden, wasn't it, Jason? This was not pick up your Time magazine or your Life magazine to make a terrible pun and understand what's going on. They were quite often implemented in places where they could control and hide the the truth of it. And anything that can't face the, the light of day is undefensible, isn't it? And so we've reached a point now where what's defending all this? Power. We've basically gone all the way back around to the idea that might is right. Remember the whole King Arthur legend and all that, you know, we grew up through the age of chivalry and we realized, oh, it's laws that matter and might is not right. And everyone gets treated equally under the law. We are currently living in a world where we've gone all the way back around to the biggest bicep gets their way. Yeah. And uh, those in charge basically use this to try and get their way in a very large scale way. Uh, even to the point that they were trying to limit what kind of immigrants would be coming into the United States and all that. It really, it seems like this whole thing was run by a bunch of dirty, disgusting racists. Well, think of, you know, we're we're not going to be able to talk about this in hour one, Jason. I'm assuming we're going to be able to run an, an hour one to everyone, but we do need to bring up the corollary, um, to this overarching idea that is rampant in the world now. And that's why I put the gum Jabbar allegory simile, not even really a metaphor, um, down an hour one so people could draw that line. Okay, so let's talk about Charles Darwin, who lived from 1809 to 1882, and of course hung around a lot of the inner circles of the elitist scumbags. He was an English naturalist, geologist, and biologist, best known for his contributions to the science of evolution, more like the theory of evolution. His proposition that all species of life have descended from common ancestors is now widely accepted and considered a fundamental concept in modern science. His book, On the Origin of the Species, from 1859, revolutionized scientific thought through his theories on evolution and natural selection. The follow-up book, The Descent of Man, from 1871, further expanded on evolution and has more bearing on the eugenics movement as it refers to the differences between the races of men 
and the natural inferiority of several of them. Yes, these English academics were quite racist. It is notable, however, that Darwin does not think the races as different or dangerous as Galton did. You know, even as I read, uh, I, w- I want to know what people accepted as true about the sky clock. So I'll go read Rosicrucian things. And the same smack of racism that we're getting into here is within the Rosicrucian order because simply they're stating outright, at least, you know what, at least they're not hiding it. At least they are putting on their sleeve what it is that they're pushing and accepting. And to that, I'll give them props, even though I don't agree with it. They'll say that this is the age of the Aryan and that everything else is inferior. And I'll come right back around. Let's go to the animal kingdom. All right, we got a lion and a gazelle. Lion can take apart that gazelle every day of the week. Is the gazelle inferior? No? Well, that's not the right measure. Well, what is the right measure? The right measure is that the natural world, the creation created what needs to be here, and there is no portion of the creation that does not serve some purpose, even if it is beyond our ability to detect it. And it is a bit ironic to me that Mr. Darwin wrote The Descent of Man, in 1871. And while I think the implied meaning of dissent is a bit different than what I'm going to imply, if you take an average educated human being from that period of time and compare it to the average ed- educated human being now, a dissent has in fact happened. Free fall, nearly free fall. From the descent of man, with savages, the weak in body or mind are soon eliminated. We civilized men, on the other hand, do our utmost to check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed, and the sick. Thus, the weak members of civilized societies propagate their kind. No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of man. Hardly anyone is so arrogant as to allow his worst animals to breed. The aid which we feel impelled to give to the helpless is mainly an incidental result of the instinct of sympathy, which was originally acquired as part of the social instincts, but subsequently rendered, in the manner previously indicated, more tender and more widely diffused. Nor could we check our sympathy, if so urged by hard reason, without deterioration in the noblest part of our nature." All right, let's go back up to the top of the paragraph and ask ask a couple of logical, simple questions. They're asserting that natural selection is a thing. And to some degree, I agree. Uh, Nature, for lack of better words, changes or evolves with certain things around it. You can take, as an example, a pig. There are many pigs that when they go feral or released in the wild, they grow tusks again in like a very short period of time, like within a generation. Cats have some of these things. They become wild very quickly. But what they're claiming here from the descent of man is with savages, the weak in body or mind are soon eliminated. Well, if that's a true statement, then why is any intervention needed? What you've just admitted here is that the system we call the natural world or the creation is already naturally built in a way that these that can't get along will not get along. They'll just cease to be. But then they go on to make the claim that it is highly injurious to the race of man, which is another bold-faced poppycock. So however long humans have, beings have been here, what they're saying is we've been injured the whole time because geniuses like these guys weren't around to call the population, when exactly the opposite is provably true. The creation has 
allowed men and women to breed and propagate up to this point, if you see the logic that I'm trying to underline here. Sir Francis Galton, FRS, who lived from February 16th, 1822, until January 17th, 1911. He was an English Victorian-era polymath, a statistician, sociologist, psychologist, anthropologist, tropical explorer, geographer, inventor, meteorologist, protogeneticist, psychometrician, and a proponent of social Darwinism, eugenics, and scientific racism. He was knighted in 1909. Galton produced over 340 papers and books. He also created the statistical concept of correlation and widely promoted regression toward the mean. He was the first to apply statistical methods to the study of human differences and inheritance of intelligence and introduced the use of questionnaires and surveys for collecting data on human communities, which he needed for genealogical and biographical works and for his anthropometric studies. He was a pioneer of eugenics, coining the term itself in 1883, and also coined the phrase nature versus nurture. His book, Hereditary Genius from 1869, was the first social scientific attempt to study genius and greatness. As an investigator of the human mind, he founded psychometrics, the science of measuring mental faculties, and differential psychology, as well as the lexical hypothesis of personality. He devised a method for classifying fingerprints that proved useful in forensic science. He also conducted research on the power of prayer, concluding it had none due to its null effects on the longevity of those prayed for. His quest for the scientific principles of diverse phenomena extended even to the optimal method for making tea. As the initiator of scientific meteorology, he devised the first weather map, proposed a theory of anticyclones, and was the first to establish a complete record of short-term climatic phenomena on a European scale. He also invented the Galton whistle for testing differential hearing ability. He was Charles Darwin's half-cousin. Wow, no kidding how those guys were related. Gotta have your tea, don't you? Gotta have your tea, <laughs> but let's go back up to the top. Why is it always that there's a 9-11 encode in these birth and death dates? Um, is it the system associating properly, or is something else going on? Is somebody making up numbers to fit a narrative? I, I'm almost around to the point where I think a lot of this is the system putting the beans where they belong. Um, but So he's knighted. So does that mean he, he leaves the daylight? He becomes a member of night? In the uh, in 1909, he no longer does what he does in the sunlight. Um, but let's get into this. So he induced, introduces the use of questionnaires and surveys to collect data on human communities. So think about whatever's going on here in the early 1900s compared with those who can collect the data, which is an endless data stream on every online society that exists in such quantity that every day it will be infinite. And so if he was getting value from that, what do you suppose is going on now? And that brings us around to the problem with eugenics in the first place. Who the hell is qualified to make the all-important decisions? You can stay, you got to go. Uh, well, all that data, I would suggest, that's being collected are giving pictures that were never previously drawn, at least not for human beings. He also conducted research on the power of prayer, and he concluded this is all poppycock. And I would say this is another key tell on eugenics. You cannot recognize spiritual 
beliefs or religion at any level when you're going to engage in things that are trying to trump the creation. And so, of course, we would expect to see that happen. And I guess I'll leave it there for now. I don't know what it is about some of these guys, but they seem to dismiss spirituality, at least on the surface. Now, maybe that's to spread the concept of atheism, because these all-knowing academicians don't have any sort of spiritual belief. But we all know that the higher you go up the pyramid, they're not only into spiritual concepts, they're very much about manipulating them in a very dark way. Well, for one thing, if you wanted to support the idea of spiritual growth, you would quickly have societies of people that had spiritually risen too high to be easy controllable. But on the face of this, this is hypermaterialism. Anytime you see science at the exclusion of anything else, you're looking at hypermaterialism. If I can't put it on the scale and get myself a weight, then it doesn't exist. Or if it does, it's not worth talking about. Or maybe we'll just deny it because I can't put it on the scale and gain a weight. It is, in fact, hypermaterialism. And what's going on here is there's two points of view. I suppose we could be crude and generally classify everything we're talking about. There are those who are going to go out into the world and say, this place is amazing, man. Look at it. How did it all come to be? Truly, this place is a creation. How did this orchid bee come to be when the orchid can't reproduce without it and the bee can't live without the orchid? How did all that happen? As one of a gazillion examples. And the other people are going to say, there is no God. Man is the ultimate arbiter. And that's where the hypermaterialism comes in. But as you pointed out, Jason, we know certainly that the people high up running the show on the dark side of the force, we presume, are very spiritually adept. It's just that they got in bed with Darth Vader, I guess. Now we're going to start getting into some of the twisted things that were done in the United States. August 2nd, 1882, the United States legislature passes an act to regulate immigration. Under this act, every person attempting to enter the country who is not a citizen of the United States can be charged a levy of 50 cents. The funds collected from the levy are then to be put toward paying for the cost of regulating immigration. Each non-citizen attempting to enter the country needs to be examined according to a set of exclusionary criteria. If found to be undesirable, they can be barred entry. The grounds for exclusion include convicts, lunatics, idiots, or, quote, any person unable to take care of himself or herself without becoming a public charge. The phrase becoming a public charge can be seen as a lean for this act to have a slant to eugenics. The rise of eugenic theory and practice coincided with a rise in immigration in the United States, particularly from Eastern Europe. As immigration rates rose, public concern grew over the rising number of non-Western, non-Anglo-Saxon people attempting to immigrate to the United States. The rising immigration rates resulted in a public concern that America would be overrun or flooded by undesirable persons. A similar motivation is said to have underwritten parts of the eugenics movement. This legislation highlights certain thinking of the time as it points to how there was public concern about undesirables in various forms. We're here, we're at roughly here 1882, so we've just come supposedly past what's called the Civil War. Um, but isn't it ironic that people who would have been classified as undesirables by these folks uh, they were bringing them in by the boatloads at one point. Uh, but isn't it interesting if you look 
at things like what Hollywood does. You go look at these Hollywood movies about the early immigration into the United States and almost to a movie, you find there was a large group of Italians, large group of Irish, and there's a few others, Germans. And these are the people, I guess, that were allowed in because of their ancestral bloodlines, uh, because the communities did grow and they still make up decent portions of our country, I would say, but the other ones are never really covered. It is rare when, when you see some other stock from the world somewhere covered in the way that they are highlighted. And to me, it's a looking glass. It's a looking glass about what they would allow and that what they wouldn't. And that may be, that may just be just my point of view, but I think it's interesting to consider the lens of what the movies tell us is the way it went. May 16th. 1883, Francis Galton coins the term eugenics, later describing it as the study of the agencies under social control that may improve or repair the racial qualities of the future generations, either physically or mentally. Galton details the concept in his book, Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development, and recommends that individuals from families that rank highly in his merit system be encouraged to marry early and given incentives to have children. He also condemned late marriages within this same group as dysgenic or disadvantageous to the human species. You know, Jason, uh, we recently made a contact and uh, the current situation in the world, uh, one of the things that came up in our conversation as we were meeting was the idea that there was this very special bloodline that almost goes back to pre-flood conditions. And it seems to me that the idea that we talked about in private the other day is really the underwriting tone of all this. Maybe we can get a little more into that idea in hour two, but doesn't it feel like from the get-go, uh, the communities that were allowed to come populate places like New York City, you know, it, it was planned to get certain levels of Germans, Irish, um, Italians, almost where they would go. The movies will also show you, oh, they were Irish. They're all police officers. You know, <laughs> Oh, they were Italian. Well, most of them were mobsters. And if they weren't mobsters, they're, you know, it's, it's almost like what they wanted shows through and what we're shown. Yeah, well, you definitely see these stereotypes being played out, especially in early Hollywood films. But obviously, not every Irish person came and became a uh, police officer. More often than not, most of these people, no matter where they came from, ended up working uh, in factories and things like that. Because we're talking about the Industrial Revolution era here. I think we were on to the second part of the Industrial Revolution at this point. So these people were either in factories or down at the docks or in warehouses. And that's what they did. They weren't part of anything grandiose or anything like that. No, but it would be interesting to actually get your hands on some of the immigration records, which I'll bet you you might be able to pull off and just see what percentage of racial multitudes were trying to come in and who was allowed and who wasn't allowed, because I think that would be a tell. Uh, we, we're pretty much sure anything Italians, all systems go, right? Italians and Sicilians, they kind of differentiated a bit as I understand it. Oh, there's, there's huge differences, but it was pretty clear that they made up huge portions of certain cities. Uh, that was the whole idea behind the mob. Very well organized, but let's keep going. This is neither here nor there. Galton's original characterization of eugenics is stated as a brief word to express the science of improving stock, which is by no means confined to questions of judicious mating, but which, especially in the case of man, takes cognizance of all influences that tend, in however remote a degree, 
to give to the more suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable than they otherwise would have had. Well, on your last sentence there, you've admitted that what you're engaged in here is complete BS. So first of all, you're calling living men and women stock. Is that how we refer to human beings? Is that what a human being is? They're stock. Uh, And by the way, if we wanted to go into the future, presumably some point where we're more spiritually evolved, will we even be called cattle at that point? Um, But my point here is the last sentence. So they should give a more, the more suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable than they otherwise would have had. Well, if they're so much better, why does someone need to tip the scales in their favor? Do you see the problem? You just not too long ago, earlier in this conversation, we're talking about survival of the fittest and natural selection. And then here you're going the exact opposite way and saying there's a chance here that all these things are better won't, won't make it. So which is it? It's just, it's circular arguments is what it is. Well, they're tipping their hand right from the get-go, showing that they have this massive superiority complex, blatantly saying how they don't think most people are worth spit, except them. Well, they even, you know, even the language that you just pulled, so chance of prevailing, and then they put the word speedily in there. You know, it's almost like a hedge, like, oh, eventually, you know, centuries in the future, it'll happen automatically. But what's actually going on here is they're claiming there's something better and more suitable, but it needs help. And those two arguments can't balance each other. No, it's just the same nonsense that we see from the elitists today. And now, of course, what are they trying to do? They are trying to call the herd, aren't they? Right. And that's, you know, those words are used. And I'll ask again, as a living man and a living woman, is that a herd? Is that what we are? Look up the word herd, look up the word stock, and then see if in any way, shape or form, you can warp that back to talk about human beings, the apex of this creation. And I don't care if you're talking about Bushmen of the Kalahari or the most advanced PhD that ever walked the earth. Um, They're all part of this creation and they're all human beings. There's even times we can go back where they're making laws to making the undesirable races three quarters of a man or some nonsense. It's all mental gymnastics to further a point of view that is pretty much undefensible. But look what we're facing now. These same indefensible ideas are exactly what we see within the ruse of this modern day. And there's something I'd really like to point out that I've had a discussion with several people now about. And that's that if these people actually got what they wanted and they wiped out what they consider the vast majority of dummies, do they realize that the people who are strong, intelligent, free thinkers, uh, those kind of people who are very self-sufficient and want to just be their own people and be left alone, if you removed that huge buffer of whatever you want to call it, there's nothing left as a buffer between us and these people that consider themselves the elite. And it's going to be very obvious to those people who might be left after some cataclysmic event that they are the ones who did it. Well, all the people helping in this push, I'll ask a simple question. If they get what they want, you're going to be living in a place where there's one pack of wolves. Is that where you want to live? And, and how, can we, how can we make this a defensible even... Uh, the, the supposed noble aim they're claiming it is when if you look at any other section of the natural world, what happens when this particular bird is about to go extinct? A big deal is made out of it. 
by everybody. You know why? Because there's going to be a hole in the ecosystem the way it was. Um, and since we're talking about human beings and there's a lot less types of human beings, I would guess, than birds or other animals that could go extinct in this world, we've already demonstrated that species being removed damages the, the intended method of an ecosystem to work. But come back around. Would you want to live in a world where there was one pack of wolves? Because that's a little bit what this is like. Or swim in an ocean where the only thing is white sharks. <laughs> January 1st, 1888, Frederick Wines publishes The Report on the Defective, Dependent, and Delinquent Classes of the Population of the United States. The report contains findings from the United States' 1880 census and was influential in the eventual creation of the DSM, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, by the American Psychiatric Association, which was used to classify mental disorders. Frederick Wines was assigned to look over the 1880 census, being tasked by the superintendent of the census, Francis A. Walker, who changed census collection to include considerably more information that could be tied to public policy issues. Wines was tasked to examine dependency, and the result was a 582-page report published eight years later. Wine's report examined relationships between mental illness and variables such as race, gender, age, etc. Seven categories were described in the 1880 census, which were dementia, dysphthomania, epilepsy, mania, melancholia, monomania, and paresis, and eventually the categories were adopted by the American Psychiatrists Association, although there was some criticism as the system did not take into account etiology or the cause of a disease or abnormal condition. This publication is considered important to the history of the DSM, whose classification was used in eugenic practices. So if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, is it a duck, I would ask. So one of the things that they're outlining in the initial, these are mentally deficient people, is dementia. At the time this was done in 1880, the level of dementia was a tiny fraction of what it is now. Is there a relationship, I would ask? And by the way, they set up the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, which is quickly adopted by the American Psychiatrist Society. Look at now. Look at how mental health is becoming an overarching controlling statistic. Look at all the ads. It's almost like you would think one in five people is mentally defective from all the effort that they're putting into that classification. And then as now, if they ever stamp you with this, woe be to you. Because you just became a baby in diapers again with that anchor around your neck. Um, and look at all the people who have gone to try to defend themselves in the legal system. First thing that comes up is you need a mental evaluation. Look what all these, look, look at the paving of this road where it, where it has led. This was the beginning of laying down the groundwork so they could always have something to control you with. And it's being used in a big way today. Yep. This is uh, dangerous stuff. You get that moniker and woe to you. You are now carrying an anchor around your neck that I don't know if you can get it off. And that's by intention. And uh, if you pay attention to modern media and look at all the supposed mental disease related things, or for that matter, take the, the, the drugs, you know, our, our, the, the side of our medicine that is completely about pushing chemical drugs, how many of them are designed to deal with a mind 
Well, that was coming very shortly after this started uh, being implemented as well. So we can see how these things worked hand in hand. Indeed. February of 1888, Victoria Woodhull, a prominent American suffragist, publishes her booklet, Sterpiculture, or The Scientific Propagation of the Human Race. Sterpiculture, a term synonymous with eugenics, was likely used due to its association with the controversial Oneida community, a utopic sect that practiced free love and reputedly only permitted its superior members to become parents. You know, this reminds me, you can go to places like very old writings, you know, the kinds of things I'm talking about that would have to do with Sky Clock or similar to some of the old Rosicrucians, similar to the Light of Egypt, where they'd make a claim that before human beings fell into the 3D material reality or as they were falling, um, to have a child was like the sacred thing. And there were all these things that were observed to recognize the sacred nature of it. And what you're looking at here is the complete stripping that that spiritual side of creation is even a possibility. And again, you've put it to a lump of lead on a scale. So the hyper-materialistic is the only thing that matters. And I think it's important to think about that because I truly do suspect that you cannot have any spiritual bent in you to sign on to what we're talking about. You know, it's interesting that they used the term free love, and it makes me wonder, since we know so much of the 1960s counterculture movement was completely instigated, if they drew on some of this former utopian society ideal stuff that didn't work, obviously, and then re-injected it to uh, cause mass confusion and chaos. Well, it becomes an archetype. If it was used at any level back in the 1880s, um, then that is an archetype within the realm of human experience. And so then to trot it out in the 60s, it's already got a little more octane. It's going to give you a little more bang for your buck, isn't it? And by the way, we didn't look into it, but there might have been all kinds of experimentation done around this idea. And the fact that they're centering in on, a, on an Oneida community that supposedly is doing these things pretty much tells you they studied it. In 1892, Dr. Isaac Curlin's Presidential Address to the Association of Medical Officers of American Institutions for Idiotic and Feeble-Minded Persons speaks of surgery for the relief of idiotic conditions, in which he asks the audience, whose state shall be the first to legitimize orphorectomy and orchotomia for the relief and cure of radical depravity. And I'm pretty sure what they mean by that is drilling holes in people's heads. I, you know, maybe one flew over the cuckoo's nest is a good example of what we're talking about here. It's, it's hyper materialism and scientism gone to a very dark extreme. I, you know, I just don't even want to give it energy to talk about it. It's kind of that horrible. In 1893, August Wiseman publishes The Germ Plasm. His germ plasm theory states that inheritance only takes place through germ cells, gametes such as egg or sperm cells, and not through the somatic cells, the cells forming organs, bones, or other tissue, that carry out an organism's functions. This theory refuted the Lamarckian concept that organisms can pass down characteristics acquired during their lifetime to their offspring and offered support to Darwin's theories of evolution. It is considered one of the scientific origins of eugenic thought. This theory was successful in convincing a majority of scientists and was therefore highly influential. 
Wiseman's theory was also used by degeneracy theorists to support negative eugenics. You can see it in the language, Jason. It was successful in convincing. Wait a minute, aren't you guys scientists? Where's the proof, yo? First of all, you're saying the word theory, so we know what a theory is. It's a bad idea or a worse idea every year. It keeps that tag. It becomes a worse and worse and worse idea because that theory cannot be proven or it would no longer be called a theory. To the point where in my life, if I see the word theory, I'm really not interested anymore. If it's a brand new theory, I might look at it. If it's one that's been around as long as I have, I don't need to waste my time. But they're, they're claiming this theory, hint, 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 was successful in convincing supposed scientists who are supposed to be engaged in proofs. Um, it's just all a bit much. And I would, I would ask another thing. You, you totally have to separate any idea of spirituality and the idea of a new living being uh, to go down this road, to try to force it into materialistic ideas. I had an example, but I lost it. So heck, let's just keep moving on. It'll come back to me. Well, once again, this just really seems to be more evidence to point out the fact that all of these academia type people were just total, complete, not a racist. It's, it actually goes, yeah, it's, it's like hyper material race you know, they, they will not recognize what the natural world demonstrates. Would some of these men been concerned that this big cat on the Serengeti is about to go extinct? And if so, how can you have that concern for the provable operation of a world's natural systems and then throw it out the window for its apex beings? Just none of it makes sense. Well, if these people are so into the concept of evolution, then you would think that these people that they look down upon, like black people, they should actually be revering them because that is who the theory of evolution says that everyone else came from. But they do the opposite. They look down on them like they're inferior in some way, which is just not true. Uh, it's, it, it makes no sense because if you're going to do the evolution, you're coming from pond scum or a monkey at some point. So the idea that somehow you're better, you know, if you want to follow that line of reasoning, um, we're better, but we were pond scum at one point. It completely throws away any religious, and I don't really like the word, any spiritual outlook for living men and women. And yet we know beyond doubt at this point, well, here, that's the example I had forgotten. So you're going to go through all this hyper-materialist about how they inherit brilliance or beauty or any of these things. Hey, boys, what do you do with the hundredth monkey, which has been demonstrated quite a number of ways now? That throws a monkey wrench into your logic and proves that what you're trying to prove is the mechanism passing forward these characteristics you're in is, is poppycock. Because I got news for you. These monkeys on this island learn a thing, never talk to these other monkeys, and these other monkeys halfway across the world. And I think there's been problems with the 100th monkey, but I know that it's been demonstrated in other ways than that. And there's no possible way you can begin to explain these things without the spiritual component. There is no material contact. Um, so these ideas, they get, it's truly successfully convincing. That's what they are for the scientific community becomes successfully convincing who gives a damn that it's called a theory and will always be called a theory who gives a damn that, that no, no proof is coming forth with. Well, just between you, me and a zillion other people, I still do think these people are pond scum. We'll see where this goes, man. But if they got their way, we would have a severely broken ecosystem to say the least. July 1st, 1893. F. Hoyt Pilcher, upon his appointment as the superintendent of the Kansas State Asylum for Idiotic and Imbecile Children, implements a program of 
castration, despite the absence of a law supporting such measures. Pilcher was one of the early physicians who performed sexual surgery on patients suffering from severe mental illness. His actions were in line with the medical opinion in Kansas at the time that tended to promote sexual surgery as a treatment for mentally ill patients. This is said to have begun as early as 1890. What does any sexual surgery have to do with for the benefit of someone who supposedly got some kind of a mind or brain issue or whatever they're calling idiots at this point? You're implementing castration and you're doing these things. And to me, it smacks all day of you're doing research and you're doing it in a way you can get away with it. Because look around, ladies and gentlemen, look at all the things supposedly being enforced that don't have a law to back them. The difference is, is that in this time, that will eventually catch up with them. Not that they'll pay any price, but an end will come to what they're up to. Uh, But look, how is it different from where we are now? Someone made a mandate and a guideline and people will arrest you without law behind it. It's almost like all of this is run-ups and experiments. But if you're doing sexual surgery on someone who's supposedly what you called an idiot or an imbecile, All you're doing is you're experimenting. That's what you're doing. Illegally, I might add. But being allowed to do it because, well, they can. And they did indeed get away with it. Well, they're claiming that that was within the the acceptable medical opinion in Kansas. What the hell does that mean? You have a journal of medicine. So even if you want to go with the extreme scientism that we're all subject to at this point, Typically, if surgeries of any kind are going to catch on in this country, it's because the community as a whole is agreeing that that's what's going to happen. So not only are they breaking the law, they're also narrowing down where it's acceptable to Kansas. Isn't there a book called, Hey, Kansas, You're Flat? (laughs) Or something like that. Just saying. Well, once again, this is showing the problem that if you're labeled with a concept of mental deficiency, I guess we could say, you're screwed because they just might do terrible things to you. I don't think there's any difference between the period of time we're talking about now, people who get that moniker put on them. And what's even worse is it has to do with judges a lot, whether that sticks or not. Not even the idea that some medical professional has put that anchor around your neck. Um, It becomes a legal idea now. And what it basically does is it strips any ability for you to speak up for yourself on any level that matters. May 16th, 1897. Michigan becomes the first American state to introduce a compulsory sterilization bill. However, the law did not pass. The proposed law, which called for the mandatory castration of defined types of criminals and degenerates, fails to pass in the legislature, but sets a precedent for similar laws. And oh boy, they came. So this is another thing, Jason. Is there any way in hell that the idea of a constitution, all men are created equal, any of the language you want to pull from these supposed founding documents, how could you ever introduce a bill without in the back of your mind knowing if someone challenges this and goes to a legitimate court, it will get shot down. But this is the case in point. I need to get into hour two. This is exactly what is going on now. We're going to do this thing that is undefensible. It's illegal. It's anything you want to call it, but we're going to get away with it for enough time to get an outcome. It's no different than what we're seeing here in 1897. And for the last point for hour one, in May of 1901, David Starr Jordan, a prominent American eugenicist, publishes a thesis entitled The Blood of the Nation, 
a study in the decay of races by the survival of the unfit in Popular Science magazine. The article was intended to promote eugenics among the general public and saw publication in book form in 1902 and once again in 1910. Jordan's research was considered authoritative and accessible by non-academic audiences. The book contains anti-war messages mixed with its pro-eugenics beliefs. Jordan theorizes that wars cause the fittest to die. As a result, the weak and unfit stay home and have more children, leading to an overall disintegration of society. Jordan argues that this theory explains the decline of both the Greek and the Roman empires. So here is where we start getting into a thing that we see over and over and over. If it doesn't root back to Greek or Rome in some way, then it's just not that classically important. But let's go up to the top here where the study, Blood of a Nation, a study in the decay of races by the survival of unfit in popular science magazine. Make up your mind. Does survival of the fittest matter? Does any of these things that you're saying about nature matter. Because here, once again, you're going the opposite direction, claiming, oh, the best of us get sucked into this other thing we invent to do, and they all get killed, so the worst of us are left behind. But you see, the very title tells you a thing. The study in the decay of races. I got news for everyone. For supposedly millennia, there has been an idea of cycles of time. There is the idea that there was a golden age once and that there will be a golden age again. This was accepted and known up to some unknown hundreds of years ago that I could only guess at. Once again, what this does is it ignores what the most fortunate among us have access to and what the rest of us learn in school, and it leverages on that basic ignorance, I would point out. Okay, so obviously we're having trouble making a lot of the points we would like to make. Because we're an hour one, and these are very touchy subjects, aren't they? Yeah, they are. You know, so let, let's go ahead and let's let's wrap this up and get over into hour two. Uh, you with me, Eugene? To make a terrible pun at the end of hour one, um, there it is. Join us all at crow triple seven radio dot com for hour two, where we can do what we need to do to cover a thing like this. Um, This has been the first hour of episode three hundred and forty five, and I hope to see you on the other side, where we can match up these ideas that are the long game to what we are seeing now. I'll even point out some, it's, it's horrendous. It's horrendous, but it doesn't have to be in the same way. Paul Atreides walked away alive from the gum jabbar. Anyone can. So join us on the other side for hour two of episode 345. And I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy and higher minded new era. Cheers.
belief is the enemy of knowing.